Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everybody, quick announcement before we get started today. OnScript is hosting a social distanced live event at Neshota House Theological Seminary in Wisconsin on the 21st of July from 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. That's going to be with Professor Janine Brown talking about her book, Gospels as Stories. Drew Johnson's also going to be there. I'm going to be there. We're going to have a great evening from 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. on the 21st of July. If you'd like to find out more information, go to our events page at onscript.study and register to come. Uh, It's a limited event because of social distancing, so there are only a few spots available. But if you want to get in quickly, uh, please do sign up. We'd love to see you there. Welcome back to On Script, everyone. This is Matthew Bates. Uh, I have with me Chris Tilling, and uh, we're going to be joined by our guests, Brant Petrie and Michael Barber, two premier contemporary Catholic biblical scholars. Let's start, though. Uh, with uh, a thoughtful word from a famous scholar. Mere imputation is not Paul's view of Christian righteousness. He believed that those who died with Christ were really changed and no longer lived in sin. One of Luther's slogans was simul justice at peccator, at the same time justified and sinner. That was not Paul's view. He believed in transformation. We might wonder who the author of that quote is, uh, as it seems like an anti-Lutheran voice, but it is, in fact, E.P. Sanders, uh, often regarded as uh, the father of the new perspective on Paul. But that's a good way of kicking off a conversation here uh, that will especially feature uh, some Catholic-Protestant um, dialogue, and uh, we're, we're looking forward to it. Um, so welcome to On Script, uh, Brant and Michael. Thanks for having us on. This is great. Thanks for having us, Matt and Chris. Real honor and a pleasure to be here. Well, let's start with a hardball question. Um, Given that the preponderance of biblical research is carried out by Protestants, in the book you say, we feel that a distinctively Catholic approach should also have a seat at the table. So let's start with that first one. What do you mean by a distinctively Catholic approach? Michael, you want to take that one first? Sure. Well, one of the things we wanted to highlight in the beginning was that for a Catholic approach, uh, one of the things that emerges, Luke Timothy Johnson talks about this in uh, his own writings, is an attempt to try to bridge things that typically are seen as antithetical. So a both-and approach. Oftentimes, uh, when scholars come to interpretive issues in Paul, what often happens is people feel like they have to either choose this option or that option. And what we want to show is that by looking at Paul in this book as a new covenant Jew, and in particular looking at the way Jeremiah 31 informs so much of his thought, what happens is a lot of the the, the tensions that you find in Paul seem to uh, get resolved in some surprising ways. So, you know, a Catholic approach broadly can mean lots of things. Of course, in uh, broad terms, Catholic just means universal. So you could talk about Catholic with a small c. Michael Gorman talks about this in the introduction to the book. In fact, I was very grateful for, for, for his introduction because he talked about the fact that what we tried to do in the book was be both, you know, distinctively Catholic in the sense of Roman Catholic— which, of course, is a very broad tent. We've got Jesuits, and we've got Dominicans, we've got Carmelites, we've got Franciscans. But in a broader sense, we also want to be Catholic in the sense of learning from scholars that uh, we have great respect for. And so throughout the book, we're really trying to bring together people who are often seen in different silos and, and show how these different approaches in Paul, this often happens, right? You get the apocalyptic camp, you get the, uh, you know, the new perspective, yeah, something like that. What we wanted to argue for is that uh, if you start looking at Paul as a new covenant Jew, if you move that to the center of the conversation and see how Jeremiah 31 and that promise of a new covenant is something that seems 
to be a recurring theme in his in his writings, um, what happens is a lot of the insights of scholars in, say, the apocalyptic school or the salvation history approach begin to, to, to start to come together. And so what we wanted to do was be Catholic in that sense. And, and I really appreciated Gorman in the beginning. He said that um, the book is in certain ways Catholic. He put capital C Catholic, in many ways Catholic, small c, and in all ways stimulating. And I, and I hope we've accomplished that in the book. Yeah, that was, that was, I just want to throw one thing in there, too. Um, I don't remember whether we put this in the intro or not, but both of us come from a generation of Catholic scholars that were raised in the ecumenical era, right? So, like, both of our doctoral directors were non-Catholics, right? So, right. Michael's doctoral director was Colin Brown, mine was David Awney. Uh, and so, uh, we also saw this as a kind of homage to our non-Catholic friends, colleagues, brothers, and sisters, just to say, uh, express what we've learned. Uh, especially from the predominantly Protestant scholarship of the Pauline field, but also try to maybe add some new insights and fresh, uh, fresh, a fresh look at uh, certain aspects of Paul um, that did really emphasize that both and approach. Because let's face it, I mean, contemporary Pauline scholarship right now, on the one hand, I think we're kind of going through a golden age of Pauline exegesis. I mean, it's it's amazing, not just the amount of material that's being written but the value, the quality of it. So there are really, really intelligent people writing in these different camps, whether it's the, you know, radical new perspective or the old perspective. These are, these are really intelligent people. And yet at the same time, there's a, a temptation to kind of, you know, separate, right, and divide up. Say, you know, I belong to Campbell. I belong to Paula Fredrickson. You know, like first <laughs> I, I belong to Martin Luther or, or to uh, Kasemann or whatever it might be. And so we, we were trying to kind of look for the value in the different perspectives and then see where we could unite them uh, and, and kind of bring about a synthesis. So that's, that's what we were hoping to do uh, in, in the book. Well, I think there's no doubt it's a very ecumenical book, and you guys are to be applauded for it. Uh, the title of the book, for those who um, are, are tuning in, uh, is Paul, a New Covenant Jew, Rethinking Pauline Theology, uh, published with uh, Erdman's 2019. Um, and uh, the authors, uh, Brant Petra, Michael Barber, and John Kincaid. We have Brant and Michael here. Uh, just a, a brief word about them. Um, Brant is Distinguished Research Professor of Sacred Scripture and author of um, both academic books and popular books. Uh, one of his academic books that might interest our listeners is Jesus and the Last Supper, uh, his popular book, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. Michael Barber is Associate Professor of Scripture and Theology and author of the recent book, Salvation, What Every Catholic Should Know. And they are both at the Augustine Institute of, uh, for Graduate School of Theology. Um, and you're in Colorado, right? That's correct. Right, right. We're just outside of Denver. Yeah. Wow. Nice place to be. And yeah, you know, it's probably worthwhile mentioning as well that um, this is Chris Tilling. Oh, the one with um, the British accent. Okay, yeah, yeah that's it. we can see. <laughs> Immediately sounds intelligent. It's it's my only it's my only card, I'm afraid. Um, I had a chat with John Kincaid, uh, one of the co-authors, um, not only about his own contribution to the book, but about some of his wider work, and that's coming out on Onscript soon. Yeah. So um, anyway, um, as we kind of dive into um, uh, the interview proper, uh, you kind of uh, focus in this book specifically not on Paul in every single possible way, but Pauline theology. Uh, and that um, it's pretty thematic. Um, I, I'd be curious just to hear you tease out a little bit more um, how you limited your study, why you chose the topics you chose. What You might just kind of lead the listener briefly through what, what are your, your chapter topics and um, how did you end up settling on this as obviously you could have gone other directions. Basically, what we wanted to do, we had two goals. One was to introduce uh, readers to some of the most um, not just controversial, but interesting discussions taking place in Pauline scholarship these days with regard to Pauline theology in particular. So anyone who's been paying any attention for the last couple of decades will know that the question of what kind of Jew was Paul, Paul's relationship with the Judaism of his day, is front and center in Pauline studies right now. And so that we begin with a chapter on that, that issue, Paul and Judaism, or Paul within Judaism, or Paul against Judaism. What's his relationship? What kind of Jew is Paul? Um, and then second, we, we look at Paul and apocalyptic, uh, because again, in the last several decades, the question 
of apocalypticism within Second Temple Judaism, which was my own area of interest at, when I was at the University of Notre Dame doing my doctoral studies. My, my dissertation was on Jesus and apocalyptic eschatology, uh, is something that is um, really a, a major discussing, discussion taking place right now in Pauline scholarship, as well as the other topics. So we, we really fit, uh, we looked at Pauline Christology, we looked at uh, the theology of the atonement and the cross, uh, and of course, we looked at justification and divine sonship. And then we, we rounded the discussion out with a, uh, a look at the Lord's Supper and its relationship to the new creation, uh, Paul's eschatology there. So what we were trying to do was give a broad enough overview of Pauline theology that when someone would finish the book, they felt like they had the tools to go back and read the letters of Paul with fresh insight, with fresh light, especially with the, the, the light motif of the new covenant as the kind of unifying thread throughout the volume, uh, and also as, a, as a, a framework for reconciling some of the tensions that you not only see in Pauline scholarship, but within Paul's letters himself, right? What, wh how, do we look, how do we explain the apparent discontinuity between Paul and certain aspects of Judaism of his day? For example, 1 Corinthians 9, Paul saying something like, I'm no longer under the law. That, that's not the kind of thing you would expect an ordinary Torah-observant Jew to say in the Second Temple period. And at the same time, in places like Philippians 3 or elsewhere, to talk about himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, as an Israelite, right? So we're trying to uh, answer the question of continuity and discontinuity within Paul's Jewish context, and then weave that same thread of a both-and approach through the lens of the New Covenant, through those other major topics. Apocalypticism is a huge topic. Christology, as you know, Matt, I mean, and, and Chris, both of you have made major contributions to the discussion of Christology in general, and Pauline Christology in particular. And then, of course, um, uh, atonement is a very big discussion, and justification has been a major topic for centuries. And then we wanted also to, in the last chapter, to bring in the Lord's Supper. Uh, because one thing we had noticed, and this is a distinctively Catholic element of the book, is there is a tendency to neglect the Lord's Supper in discussions of Pauline theology. Uh, and perhaps the most uh, kind of uh, clearest example of this is N.T. Wright's massive book, Paul and the Faithfulness of God. You know, it's over 1,500 pages, but he only gives a very small treatment to the Lord's Supper. Uh, and we thought we could bring a fresh perspective to that and a fresh emphasis on that because that is one of the places where Paul explicitly mentions, right, the new covenant. Uh, so when Paul talks about himself as a minister of the new covenant, uh, we want to show that, uh, or we tried to show that, that he probably is thinking along the lines in particular of the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And it was an extended ar argument. This is Michael Barber. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, Brant, but uh, it, it's an extended argument, too. So we wanted to—it's not like this is just a collection of essays. This is going to touch on apocalyptic. This is going to touch on Christology. You know, I think when a lot of people hear Jeremiah 31 and Paul, they go to two places, 2 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 11, where you have the Lord's Supper. And so I imagine a lot of the readers were expecting us, okay, well, if it's Paul and New Covenant Jew, we're going to go right to 1 Corinthians 11 at the beginning. But what we really want to do is sort of show how what you find in 1 Corinthians 11 Actually, with Paul appealing to Jeremiah 31, Jesus institutes the Eucharist by by alluding to Jeremiah's famous prophecy. That has already been sort of that table <laughs> to use a, a Eucharistic imagery. The table has been set in other ways by Paul. So his larger thought is drawing deeply from the implications of what it means to have a new covenant, and so things that typically seem to be difficult to reconcile, right, we can we can see how these things can kind of come together. So, for example, in the very beginning, we want to talk about how is Paul both—how is he able to say he's no longer under the law, but then he's very clearly a Jew as well. We, we don't think that Paul is a former Jew. We don't think that Paul has renounced his Judaism. No, far from it. But how can he make the comments that he does elsewhere about the law? Well, we, we, what we wanted to show was, if you go back to Jeremiah 31, you see very clearly that, that in Jeremiah 31, God talks about how he will establish a covenant, but it's not like the covenant that is at Sinai. So already in the scriptures of Israel, you have this anticipa anticipation of 
continuity and discontinuity. And that can help inform the way Paul talks about the law, the way Paul talks about apocalyptic traditions, because he's drawing deeply from them, but then he's introducing some ideas that actually transcend what you find in other apocalyptic books. When he talks about his Christology, when Paul's talking about who Jesus is, which is really the center of his thought, I think a lot of people imagine Paul has this prefabricated Jewish idea of God, and then he's trying to fit Jesus into that structure. That's not what's going on. What Paul is realizing is that in Christ, everything needs to be rethought, including what it means to be God, right? And so this opens up new ways of thinking about Christology for us. Atonement, the same way. How is it that that the new covenant is a gift, right? How is it that God is saving us through grace in a way that's gratuitous, but then at the same time, Christ has to pay the price. Well, wait a minute. Is it a gift, or does Christ have to pay the price of something? It doesn't really make sense until you start thinking in these new covenant terms. And then, of course, justification, Lord's Supper as well. We we would see similar ways of resolving antithetical ideas or seemingly disparate ideas there. Thanks, guys. I think that's a a great overview of the book, and I think it helps us to see why um, you settled on the title that you did, you know, Paul, a New Covenant Jew. That's obviously um, at the heart of your project and the integrative center of what you're doing. You circle back to that again and again as um, the New Covenant is obviously central. Um, Hey, Paul, uh, not Paul, Chris, uh, I'm thinking about Pauline theology, and now I'm I'm starting to call everybody Paul. Um, You had a question that you wanted to ask about Christology, um, and I think that's a, a good bridge in into their um, into their chapter on apocalyptic. You want to hit them with it? Yeah, sure. So um, I love that chapter. Of course, it was um, a delight to read. And um, at the end of the chapter on 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 Christology, uh, you write the following, and I just love your comment um, uh, on this. Really, um, you write the one Yahweh, the God of Israel, can somehow now be understood as Father and Son. Um, in other words, how God is understood is being rethought around Jesus Christ. I suppose my question is, where do you see the Holy Spirit factoring into Paul's theology proper, his understanding of God? Well, first, I, I would just say, one of the things we wanted to do with this book was write something that would be interesting to scholars, that would be a, represent a, a serious contribution. So the subtitle is Rethinking Pauline Theology. So we're hoping that, that scholars will, will recognize that the importance of Jeremiah 31 maybe has been underplayed in Pauline studies, and it, it needs to be reexamined. But we also wanted to write a book that we could give to our students that would help them come to know the world of Pauline scholarship and see how there have been some very serious and important advances in recent discussion. And uh, frankly, Chris, uh, Paul's pneumatology is really difficult. It's very, it's, it's, it, it is, a, 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 it would require an entire chapter, I think, for us to deal with just his pneumatology. I've got some ideas on this. We could talk about it as we go forward. But as we were working on the book, we wanted it to be readable. It was already longer than I wanted it to be. I was the guy kept who kept telling everybody, oh, we got to cut it down, cut it down, cut it down. <laughs> and then they would say, well, we got to mention this. I'm like, no, it's too long already. So, so to, That's to, really it, it's what you wanted then is a question on what 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 you didn't deal with in the book, really, <laughs> right. wasn't it? Michael, can I jump in though? Yeah. Let me just say something here. So yeah, it's funny that you bring this up, Chris, because just like literally yesterday, Michael and I were on the phone yeah. and I was saying one of the real real uh uh, regrets I have is that we didn't have a chapter on pneumatology. And of course, you lead with the question on the fact that our pneumatology, we don't have a chapter on pneumatology. But let me say two things about pneumatology, just and this might help. The first thing I would say is, if we had written a chapter on pneumatology, it would dovetail perfectly with the rest of the book. Because if you go back to prophecies of the new covenant in the, in the, in the Hebrew prophets, which are really kind of the foundation of Pauline theology and Paul's thought on this matter. Remember in Ezekiel 36, right, which is the prophecy of um, the ingathering of the exiles, the restoration of Israel, and God promises to his people, he says, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you. Uh, You're going to be cleansed from your uncleannesses, and a new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you, right? I'm going to take 
out of your flesh the heart of stone and give you the heart of flesh, I'll put my spirit within you. So um, what I would say is um, two things. First, for Paul, the, the agent of the new creation and the agent of the new heart, right, of the transformed heart that those who are in Christ will receive in the new covenant is the spirit of God, without a doubt, right? Uh, and uh, you can see places where this is the case, especially in 2 Corinthians 3, which is focused so much on, on the new covenant, right? Uh, he talks about in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, when he says, God has made us ministers of the new covenant, which by the way, that, that was one of the reasons for our titling of the book. Paul's own self-understanding. He doesn't call himself an ex-Jew or a Torah-observant Jew or an eschatological Jew. He calls himself a minister of the new covenant. So this is his self-understanding. In that very context, he says, we're ministers of a new covenant, not in a written code, but in the spirit. For the written code kills, but the spirit gives life. So the spirit is the life giver of the new covenant. And I think that if we had had another chapter, we could have developed a little bit more how Paul sees the Spirit of God, uh, how that changes, how that informs his understanding of the one God. The place I would point to on this is the same place Chrysostom pointed to centuries ago when there were debates about the divinity of the Holy Spirit taking place in the 4th century, late 4th century. It's 2 Corinthians 13, 14, right? The ending of the letter when Paul says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship or koinonia of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And centuries ago, Chrysostom made the argument that although Paul will often begin his letters with, you know, the grace and peace of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, that sometimes people would say, oh, well, look, there are only these two divine persons in Paul's understanding of the one God. But Chrysostom pointed out, and I think he's right, that no, actually you want to look at how he ends the letter as well. And he seems here in 2 Corinthians 13, 14 to be including the Holy Spirit within the one God. Now, how developed is that in Paul? Well, we'd need, we'd need a whole chapter to kind of work that out, but that would be one text I'd point to. That, in other words, he's doing something similar in 2 Corinthians 13, 14 to what he does in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. That, that'd be my short answer to, uh, to your question. And I would just add that, again, the book is an extended argument, right? So we're trying to develop these key ideas, and, you know, we're looking at Jeremiah 31. In the context of Jeremiah's prophecy, you have the idea of the coming Davidic Messiah, right? That's within the, what they call the book of, you know, the, right, the book of Constellation, you find in Jeremiah 30 to 33. So we could really show how Paul's Christology is related to this new covenant hope, right? Now, certainly the Spirit is a part of that. It's fascinating. Kyle Wells has a great dissertation where he shows how Jeremiah 31 is often linked to Ezekiel 36, right? So in Jeremiah 31, the law is written on the heart. Ezekiel 36 is the place that explains, all right, this is going to happen by the Spirit, and Paul certainly takes that up. But see, it was like a further step removed for us to bring the Spirit into that conversation, specifically of how Jeremiah 31 helps in inform Paul's thought. So that's another reason we're... In in the Christology chapter, there is a section where we do point out, Chris, you might check this out and go back to look at it, where every time Paul... The the very terminology, Christos, right? If you go back to 2 Samuel 6 or Isaiah 61, the terminology of Mashiach or Christos being anointed is anointed with what? The Spirit, right? So there's almost... Every time Paul makes a Christological statement, there's an implicit pneumatological implication because the one who is the anointed one is precisely the one who was anointed with the Spirit of God. It's almost as if Paul was a Trinitarian. <laughs> I, I wonder if we could follow off the back of this, Matt, as uh, if this is appropriate, you think? Um, because we've been speaking about the centrality of Jesus Christ in, in what you're doing and, and the focus you've laid on, on Christology. Um, in, in the chapter on apocalyptic, there's a subheading where you discuss particularly apocalyptic Christology. And um, perhaps you could say what you mean by that. Um, what, what do you mean by apocalyptic, and how do people get it wrong? What are you trying to do that um, deals with some of the problems involved in using that kind of vocabulary? Why use that vocabulary? This is, was my uh, one of my chapters that I, I was principal author. We we did co-write everything. Like it wasn't just 
you know, collections of independent essays. We wrote and then we rewrote and then we got angry at each other for changing each other's essays. <laughs> and we worked it all out in the end, but, but this one was particularly mine. So um, having studied apocalyptic eschatology uh, and cosmology, in Second Temple Judaism for a number of years, one of the things I was struck by was that if you if you look at studies of Second Temple apocalypticism by, say, John Collins, you know, the apocalyptic imagination, there's a very widespread consensus in Second Temple Jewish studies that when we talk about apocalyptic within Judaism at the time of Jesus and Paul, it isn't just at a scatological. There isn't just a temporal access, right? The distinction between an old creation and a new creation that's coming, you know, this world and the world to come, uh, you know, the, the eschatological realities of the resurrection of the dead, the new heavens and the new earth. There's also a, a temp, uh, I'm sorry, a spatial axis between this present world and then the heavenly world or the the invisible realm of God that already exists, right? The heavenly Jerusalem, uh, as opposed to the earthly Jerusalem. And what was fascinating to me coming out of that field is that when I got to Pauline studies, I saw a lot of emphasis on apocalyptic eschatology, but not a lot of emphasis on the spatial axis, so to speak, you know, the heavenly and the earthly being discussed. And so um, what I noticed as I was working on the chapter uh, on Paul was that um, Paul uses the language of apocalypto in very explicitly Christological uh, texts. So, I mean, the most famous of these, of course, is um, Galatians 1, when Paul talks about when he who had set me apart before I was born had called me through his grace and was pleased to reveal his son to me, right? Uh, here he's describing the, his conversion experience. We can go back to that terminology later, but, you know, uh, it's, it's an explicitly apocalyptic language. It's the unveiling of his son to me. And so one of the things I tried to show in that chapter, and what I mean by apocalyptic Christology, is that for Paul, um, Jesus isn't just the long-awaited heir to the throne of David. He isn't just the long-awaited seed of David who would come back to restore the Davidic kingdom. He is those things. But he's more than that because for Paul... There's a heavenly dimension to Christ's messianic identity. There's a hidden reality to the identity of the Son, which Paul has to have revealed to him by a supernatural revelation, right? There's a, there's a, there's a newness uh, that had to be unveiled to Paul that he didn't see before. And, and so what I was trying to argue about that, it's that it's not just Paul's eschatology that's apocalyptic. It's not just his cosmology of old and new creation, of this world, the world to come, that's apocalyptic. It's not just his angelology, right? His understanding of angels and demons that's thoroughly rooted in Jewish apocalyptic. It's also his Christology, right? There, there is not just an earthly Davidic Messiah, there's a heavenly son who has been revealed to Paul uh, by God. And, and that informs, it, it causes him to rethink everything about what it is and means to be the Christos. At least that... That's what I was trying to argue for there. And it leads into our discussion uh, in chapter 3, which is really the heart of the book, of Paul's divine Christology. So when I say apocalyptic Christology, that's an, a first century Jewish way of talking about a, a heavenly Christology, a divine Christology. Christ isn't just the, you know, the heir of David. He's also the, the preexistent son who's been revealed. So this was, a, this was a lot of fun for us. Bran and I have been friends for a long time. I think after my wife, Bran's my closest friend. We talk on the phone constantly. And one of the things that Brant has helped me see is that this idea of the revelation of a heavenly Messiah is an idea that scholars have recognized as part of Jewish apocalyptic traditions. And yet, you know, when we read books on Pauline Christology, this is it seems to us a lacuna, an aspect of first century Judaism that doesn't get much play. So, for example, in First Enoch 48, we have a passage about, or First Enoch 62 is another one, where it talks about how uh, God is going to reveal this son of man who's identified as the Messiah in First Enoch 62. Uh, uh, he is the one who, uh, from the beginning, was hidden Right, and, and you see this in other passages in the Anakic cor corpus, right? Oh, yeah, obviously. 
the hidden servant, right? But this gets taken up in a kind of heavenly figure, which seems to have roots in Daniel 7 and this figure of the Son of Man who's going to be revealed at, you know, at the time of the fourth beast and come with the fourth kingdom. So this was a way we thought we could look at Paul as a first century Jew and see how his ideas are rooted within Judaism at the same time. One of the things we wanted to emphasize was that for Paul, this idea of the revelation of the Messiah is also closely tied to the superiority of the new covenant to the old covenant. So in Galatians 4, he talks about these two women who are two covenants, but the reason the new covenant is superior to the old covenant is because the old covenant is mediated through angels, but the new covenant isn't simply mediated through angels. It's something greater. This is really important because it takes in a way off it takes off the table the option that Paul just thinks Jesus is an angel. Some people like Bart Ehrman will argue that well Jesus is divine. They'll even say Bart Ehrman will even say he's an incarnate divine being. But what he means by divine is an angelic being. But see for us this doesn't fit well. So yes you can see Paul is talking as a Jew about the revelation of a hidden Messiah John Collins, Adela Collins talk about this tradition and their work on first century messianism it doesn't really get applied to Paul very often but so Paul is a Jew because he's talking about the revelation of the messiah but 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 his messiah isn't just uh, a, 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 a earthly ruler he's more than that because the new covenant isn't simply mediated by angels so what does that mean well he can't simply be an angel he can't simply be a a creature, he stands on the other side of the creator-creature divide, right? And he is the divine son in a way that is identified with the Lord, the God of Israel. The new covenant is mediated through the one through whom all things were made. That's right. And that's why it's superior. So again, this is how looking at the new covenant dimension of Paul's thought surprisingly helps us understand his Christology, which is something that a lot of people we feel haven't talked much about. So Brant's awareness of these traditions, something we've talked about for a long time. And I have to say, I have to give a shout out to our friends at the Catholic Biblical Association, because Brant and I have been doing a a seminar at the Catholic Biblical Association, an ongoing, uh, continuing seminar. It's a lot of fun with lots of great scholars and on Paul. And one of the things that emerged in that conversation was Christology and New Covenant helped crystallize our ideas, and because Brant was coming with all these great ideas about apocalyptic, and then we started thinking about how it relates to New Covenant, all of a sudden it came together in a, in a really con- compelling way, we thought, and so we thought we'd put it in a book. <laughs> There's something radically new about Paul's Christology. You know? Oh, that's great, guys, um, and uh, it's a great, great segue into my pr- probably most important question of the interview, and what I'm really wondering is whether or not Chris Tilling's thesis on Christology is any good, or whether it's just a steaming pile of hot garbage. <laughs> uh, what do you guys think about uh, that is... <laughs> No, I'm just I'm just joking with you. This is where I'm going to be bleeping you. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just I'm just messing. Uh, let's, but but truthfully, let's uh, let's jump to a we speed do, round. We, I should say uh, I, real quick. I should say we do draw heavily from uh, Chris's work at the end of our chapter on Christology because in many ways we really feel like that was the kind of the the, the slam dunk, right? So you can look at specific passages, but the whole pattern that that Chris brings out. And by the way, we talked about Chris's work in our ongoing seminar at the CBA. Uh, that really drives the point home of, of, of Paul's divine Christology. We couldn't have written that chapter without that final, because it ends with Chris's thesis about the God relation and mapping Christ onto the God relation to Israel and how it isn't right. just this passage or that passage in Paul, but Paul's entire way of talking about Christ's relation to the church, for example, as, as bridegroom and bride, which is he's mapping that onto how the Israel scriptures talk about <laughs> the Lord, you know, Yahweh's relationship to the people. So we ended with that because it, we, we found that to be like the icing on the Christological cake at the end of the chapter. So thank you, Chris. You guys, I was hoping you were going to trash Chris. Come on. This is no, this is no good. We, we... It, it, it's funny though, Matt, because we, the first half of that chapter, chapter talks about Jesus as King, Jesus as King Messiah, as coming from the line of David. And we draw heavily from your work oh, in that stop, part of the stop, chapter. Stop. Okay, and then we right. draw from Chris. We're, so there you go. We're moving go. to, we a, got we're both moving to a speed round, a speed round. Okay. So, um, <laughs> Okay, yeah. Well, we'll make Mike, we'll make Michael go first then, and uh, then Chris will do a speed round with you. How about we'll do that? We'll do what? We'll do Michael's speed round first. Uh, so this could be warm up. Um, you ready, Michael? Then. 
I'm, I'm good to go. All right. So uh, what's a trend in society that scares you? That if someone disagrees with you, they must either be ignorant or they must be uh, a demon. They must have some hidden agenda. We can't seem to have meaningful disagreement anymore in our society. And that scares me more than just about anything else. You walk up to the bartender and order what? A Diet Coke. <laughs> uh, those are not good for you, Michael. I've told you. I know. So it's, probably, it's probably worse than the alcohol. All right. Uh, so, all right, Michael, this is, this is my most important speed round question for you. Uh, why do you like the Dodgers and why are you inherently perverse? <laughs> well, the Dodgers are named after the Angels. They're the Los Angeles Dodgers. And so, you know, to the pure, all things are pure. And for those who don't have ears to hear, I, I don't know what to tell you. It's just a... <laughs> no, you're you're obviously perverse. So we're, we're a giants we're we're a giants family here. So um, the, the, yeah, Dodgers. And are none out. of this is in the least bit meaningful to me. I just <laughs> want to throw that out there. This is a, the once great sport of baseball, which has been canceled. So I know I'm, I'm heartbroken. All right, yeah. what's something what's something you find embarrassing? Typos. Yeah. Right. yeah <laughs> Easy. <laughs> Typos. The scariest thing about growing older is. Uh, not being able to remember all the things that I uh, read or thought. I think that that's losing your memory. Is all right. Me well, we'll test your memory thing. then right now. What's the most important book in, uh, in biblical studies within the last 50 years for you? Uh, I would say um, I, hmm, I, I would probably say Barclay's book, Paul and the Gift. That has Paul really hit me hard. Yeah. Okay. All right. We'll we'll let you off the hook on this on the speed round. Um, do we want to do Brant's right now, or do we want to save it for later, Chris? What do you think? Let's save it. Let's let let him sweat a little bit. Let's yeah, leave it that's for right. later. Yeah. Well, you should have seen Brant whenever we asked the question about apocalyptic. He literally rubbed his hands together. I mean, he was ready. When we said speed round. Yeah. He kind of like he kind of pulled back from the microphone. So uh, so maybe uh, maybe he is nervous. Let's go to atonement then. Um, and uh, atonement has attracted uh, more than a little controversy, I think it's fair to say, in a recent discussion, especially violence, wrath, these unpleasant things about, you know, you know the idea that uh, God the Father might be some sort of, you know, divine child abuser. Um, and uh, specifically the language of uh, penal substitutionary atonement, right, is sort of a flashpoint. Um, is that language helpful? Um, and I think you guys, um, on the one hand, uh, might prefer, uh, you don't really like that phrase, it doesn't seem, but uh, you may also find it helpful. But you do bring some other language into play in talking about atonement, for example, debt. Uh, what's going on uh, in your atonement discussion? Uh, what, would, what do you have to say about penal substitutionary atonement? Why do you want to supplement it with other language? Well, I, I would say, uh, first off, that I, I, I really think that it's important for us to root the idea of atonement in the idea that um, ultimately the whole plan of salvation is an expression of God's love. And so when we look at the cross, we need to see how the cross is a revelation, it's apocalyptic, how it's apocalyptic in the sense of re revealing something, and then how it's also related to this idea of new covenant, right? So in some ways, apocalyptic is a cipher for what transcends, and a new covenant is a cipher for that element that is familiar to to the scriptures of Israel, right? So how do these two things come together? And the key idea we want to show is that, you know, it, on the one hand, it seems like we've got a problem here because salvation for Paul is a gift. There's no doubt about that. Salvation is the result of God's grace. There's nothing that we can do to force God's hand. We can't compel God by our own good works to, to redeem us, to save us. He does this on his own initiative, and he does this freely for us. At the same time, in the New Testament, we have this idea that Christ had to die, that Christ uh, suffered uh, in order to fulfill, you know, the, the righteousness of God, in order to display the righteousness of God. So how do we bridge these two ideas? And what we wanted to show was, on the one hand, uh, the idea of atonement is related to covenant theology, right? For example, in Galatians 3, we see that Christ bears the curse, right? He dies the death that is the result of 
our failure to keep the law, in particular, for example, uh, it, at the Last Supper, Jesus appeals to New Covenant language, going back to Jeremiah 31. And why is there a need for a New Covenant, Jeremiah 31? Because the Old Covenant had been broken. And as we show in the book, when you break a covenant, you merit death. <laughs> that, that's what you earn by breaking the covenant. And so in Exodus, it takes us back to Exodus because that language of the blood of the new covenant and blood takes us back to Exodus 24. And in that whole sequence, we see how God establishes his covenant with Israel by the blood of the covenant. And then Israel breaks that covenant. And this is where we get the idea of atonement. In Exodus 32, we have that language of atonement there um, in Moses's discourse with the Lord. But we wanted to show that it's not like God has sort of painted himself into a corner. It's not like we have God over a barrel. God has made a covenant with his people and now he's sort of stuck. What we wanted to show that is that what God does in for Paul in Abraham is act out how he's going to ultimately fulfill the covenant with the story of the Akedah. And so we see in the cross, a revelation of who God is. God ultimately is self-emptying. God is love. And we draw here from Gorman's work on Philippians 2, where we see that Christ was in the form of God, and then he took the form of a servant. He took human form, right? And he died on the cross. And so what he does in dying on the cross corresponds to the way he empties himself out as he is in the form of God. So there's a two-part, he's in the form of God, he empties himself out, then he becomes human and he dies on the cross. So the cross reveals what God does in his divinity in emptying himself out. So the cross reveals, in a way, the divine nature, that God is love, that God is self-giving. And so what Christ does on the cross is he doesn't paint himself in the corner, he just shows that from the beginning God loves us so much that he entered into a plan that he knew would would ultimately end in his giving his son for our redemption. So that's a so it's apocalyptic in the sense that it reveals the love of God, and it is new covenant in the sense that God is now fulfilling the covenant promises that he made going all the way back to Abraham in the Old Testament. The Gentiles would be blessed, but how would the Gentiles be blessed? Well. It's associated with the the offering of Isaac in Genesis 22. That's when God, Abraham's willing to offer his son. God promises to bless the nations as a result of it. So that's sort of like the dress rehearsal for Paul of what happens on the cross. So we want to draw from all the different atonement models, and we want to integrate them and show how, yes, Christ is paying the price, but we also have the idea of Christ as the one who is demonstrating his love and his victory over sin and over sin, uh, human failings on the cross. So hope that helps uh, kind of integrate all these different models. I would just throw in, with, add to that, like, um, it was interesting the way you phrased that, Matthew, because I don't recall us ever deliberately, like, thinking we're going to avoid the language of penal substitution. We were just trying to articulate what Paul means in his words when he talks about Christ in Romans 3 being the hilasterion, right? The uh, expiation, or as the NRSV translate, the sacrifice or atonement, that allusion to the mercy seat in Exodus 25 and to Leviticus 16 on, uh, on, the, on the Day of Atonement. So, uh, so we definitely weren't trying to avoid it, uh, but rather trying to figure out what Paul means when he says what he says about the cross. Um, so that... That would be one thing I would add. I would say to that. I, I would add too, um, Michael. You might not run with me down this road, so if you don't, like, feel free mm-hmm. to disagree. But what I would say is, a lot of people mean a lot of different things by the term, the later terms like penal substitutionary atonement. So it can become a kind of a flashpoint that will make somebody read into your exegetical conclusions presuppositions that might not be there if we were to use that later terminology. But what I would say is, if by a substitutionary atonement, you mean the sin bearer, like in the Old Testament, right? Like in the book of Leviticus, where the, the, the sacrifice bears the sin of the people unto death in order to free them from the consequences of sin, then sure, it's definitely an act of substitutionary atonement. And if by penal, you mean that the punishment involved is death, well, that's Pauline in the sense that the wages of sin are or death, right? So he, but he pays that wage. And I think this is what Michael was really driving at. Why does he pay that wage? Well, he pays it not out of necessity, but out of love, right? 
It's Christ loved me and gave himself for me in Galatians 2. So we were trying to emphasize that it's not just the suffering or death of Christ that atones. It's the love. It's the self-offering that the death signifies that covers the multitude of sins. I mean, this isn't Paul, but, you know, love covers a multitude of sin. Is That is a biblical concept from Proverbs, and you'll see it used elsewhere in the New Testament. And so we were trying to put the emphasis there, but there's definitely suffering, there's definitely death, there's definitely ransom in Pauline terminology, and in Romans 3, it's undoubtedly an atoning sacrifice with the allusion to the hilasterion. Um, and we could go other places, too, if you wanted to, like Isaiah 53. There's no doubt that the servant in Isaiah 53 bears the punishment, right, of the, of the people. He becomes a sin bearer. But we're trying to help see that through ancient Jewish cultic categories of how a sin offering works and what it's, uh, um, how it fits into the plan of the apocalyptic revelation of divine love that Paul talks about over and over again, and not just in Galatians too, but in Romans and elsewhere. And I would just pick up just one, one other thought on that, and that is that we want to uh, uh, relate this again to covenant imagery, right? So w- what is a covenant? The covenant is one of the gifts that God gives his people. And Paul is very clear about this in Romans, right? The gifts and the calling of God seem to be a, re- a, a reference to, among other things, the covenants that God has made with his people. So Christ in establishing a new covenant is giving himself freely for us. But what we wanted to do is tie that back into Barclay's work on gift and show that in a way the gift is 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 aimed at enabling us, empowering us to give back. So we believe that Christ is a substitute. He does what we couldn't do, but he doesn't do what we couldn't do so that now the story's over. He does what we couldn't do so that we can be enabled now to participate in his death. And so that's where if it depends what you mean by substitutionary atonement. And again, I don't think we ever actually talked about whether we should use the term or not use the term. That's funny. I, I, it's just, I, do, I know we, we, we do cite Gathercole's work in there, which I, I like quite a bit uh, on this. But I, I would just say that the idea is if you mean by substitutionary atonement, Christ suffers so now we don't have to, I don't think that's Pauline. I think the idea is that we are to die with Christ. We are to be crucified with him. So. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it absolutely it does. I do, I do think that it's pretty clear that, um, you, yeah, you, whether it was intentional or not, there is a neuralgic reaction around that um, penal substitutionary atonement language. And I think it's pretty clear that you affirm a lot of the ancient concepts uh, that would uh, inform penal substitutionary atonement without using that language. And uh, that's probably wise. It's probably the route I would go, uh, in fact, in my own work, as I try to avoid penal, as I think there's problems like loaded. It's a loaded term. But uh, that's that's excellent. Um, let's let's jump. Um, uh, I know that uh, you know Chris and John have already done a bit on uh, the, um, the, right, the the righteousness of God and cardiac righteousness, but I um, that's a, a key motif in your book, and I don't want to entirely neglect it. Um, so you you especially are arguing that um, that we have a cardiac righteousness, a heart righteousness that has to be in, in, intrinsic rather than merely in, extrinsic, and you're sort of pushing there against um, at least some forms of Protestantism um, that might have a merely extrinsic view. Um, The concern might be here, and I'm just curious how you would respond to this, is that you might be chasing some of Luther's phantoms rather than um, getting to the core issue. I think that most Protestants are going to happily concede uh, that those with faith have a real moral righteousness. Uh, the real issue, at least as I see it, would be whether or not the source of our righteousness is an extrinsic union with Christ's own righteousness, or whether it's an imparted righteousness that's not God's own or Christ's own. Um, is at least on my reading of Trent, I, I see Trent explicitly denying that justifying righteousness is God's own or Christ's own. Uh, so it seems to leave the path toward union with Christ's righteousness, at least um, problematic for a Catholic Protestant discussion. So um, certainly um, your focus there is on intrinsic righteousness and that that's Pauline. I think a lot of Protestants are going to agree. Uh, could you speak to the issue of the source of our righteousness um, being an extrinsic union with Christ, uh, whether you would nuance that differently, how you how that interfaces with Trent? I'll give you some latitude to respond how you wish, as there's a whole nest of issues that are all sort of bound together there. Um, yeah, tackle that as you want. Uh, yeah, there's uh, in the fall of 2020, I think it'll be the fall, maybe a little bit later, 
Um, there was a collection of essays coming out on perspectives in Paul, on Paul. Uh, Scott McKnight and uh, B.J. Oropesa. I think I'm pronouncing his name right. I'm not sure, though. They edited it, and uh, it's going to have uh, contributions from James Dunn and uh, Andrew Doss and John Barclay and, and others giving a variety of perspectives, old perspective, new perspective, the gift perspective with Barclay. And I was invited uh, by Scott McKnight uh, and BJ to do the essay on the Roman Catholic perspective on Paul. So um, keep your eye out for that because that, that essay and the response essays in there are really going to be a kind of a follow-up to what we covered in, the, in, in Paul New Covenant Jew, but a little more focused on the history of Pauline interpretation in the Catholic tradition, both the patristic, medieval, and modern period. So there's a lot there um, in that essay. So what I would just say is, um, I, I, honestly, I'm not sure I read Trit the same way you do, Matthew. So I, I, I'd have to go back and think about it. It's been a little bit of, over a year, though, since I read it carefully when I was working on that essay. Um, so I would just say a couple of things. Uh, first of all, it seems to me, and I don't know... Uh, I don't recall Trent making this distinction, but again, it's not fresh in my mind. I, mean, I was prepping for Paul, not not for Trent, for this particular interview. That the, the source of the righteous is obviously God, and it's Christ. You know, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me, right? In, in Galatians, or um, you know, uh, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, because God is at work in you. I remember Trent citing precisely those kinds of ter- uh, texts from Paul. It's a very Pauline uh, decree, the decree on justification to talk about the fact that the righteousness that is present in those who are in Christ is indeed Christ's righteousness at work. It's God at work in us through the grace of the Holy Spirit, which is uh, poured into the believer. That They'll use the language of infusion there, drawing on, on Romans 5, right, that the love of God has been poured into our hearts. Yeah, I think you're... At least my understanding of Trent, I think you're right in the sense that it would focus especially on the Holy Spirit being that which imparts. Um, here, I, ha- I happen to have Trent just as my notes here, just um, just for quick reference. But the part that I think would, would seem to at least deny the uh, idea of God's righteousness being one that is shared, where it says the single formal cause is the justice of God or the righteousness of God, not, not that by which he himself is just. So it's not God's own righteousness, it would seem, Trent's trying to say. And then in Canon 10, uh, we have something somewhere where it says, if any person says that humans, by that justice and the, the references to Christ, by that justice of Christ, are formally just, let them be anathema. So that's the part that I think is a sticking point, at least in my reading of Trent, you know, uh, for union with Christ's own righteousness, and whether that's that can be sourced in this. Uh, uh, for Protestants, they would want to say that the, the extrinsic sourcing is Christ's own righteousness. Catholics, I think, have tended to deny it, but there may be different readings of Trent, and you guys have more expertise than I do there. Yeah, I'd have to, I'd have sure. to, I'd have to say in this point, I, I, I wouldn't want to speak to it until I could really go back and look at those texts yeah, in context sure. and read them yeah. more carefully, because I, I, yeah. I'd be afraid to misspeak, and I'm certainly no expert on the council. Uh, what I would say, just which is kind of what we said in the book is that what we were trying to offer in this regard was a non-competitive account of the righteousness of those who are in Christ. In other words, uh, it's not as if God does 50% and then the, the, the believer who is in Christ does the other 50% or that they're in any way competition with one another, but rather that um, all of the works of the believer who are in Christ are Christ working in us, what, uh, you know, through our union with the Son and baptism, right? And then through faith, and then through the gift of the Spirit as well, which is what, that's really what we're trying to get at with the cardiac righteousness. In other words, there's no more clearly intrinsic image than the image of the heart, right? And so for Paul, uh, when he talks about, uh, even, so just to go to a, a, a controversial text, uh, Romans 2, and uh, and the discussion of being um, judged, final judgment according to works, when Paul is making those arguments, it's not inconsequential that he goes to the issue of the heart, right? So the Gentiles reveal that what they what the law requires is written on the heart, right? And that so it's going to be the heart that is judged there. And then again in Romans two twenty nine, he was a Jew who was one inwardly, and real circumcision is a matter of the heart, spiritual, not literal. So we were trying to emphasize that however you want to conceptualize the righteousness of the believer in Christ, it's not in competition. With the righteousness of God, uh, there's no, uh, you know, uh, competitive uh, ethic here, or uh, you know, zero sum game account. It's really all grace working in the believer who is in Christ, so that Christ's righteousness is mine, and my righteousness 
uh, is the fruit of Christ working in me, especially of this new heart that he's given me through uh, baptism and through the grace of the new covenant. So um, in that sense, uh, well, this is really John Kincaid's contribution too. We were hoping to bring cardiac righteousness into the discussion, perhaps as a way to maybe help reconcile some of the differences that emerge in the wake of Trent, um, yeah. you know, in the way we read Paul. But Michael, do you want to tag, tag on to that uh, or say anything? Yeah, I would just say, you know, in my reading of Trent, it's uh, the idea is that it's not that God's righteousness saves us and therefore our righteousness is not part of, you know, it, it, our righteousness remains purely extrinsic or alien to the believer. So whatever good works we do are ultimately the works of Christ in us. And this is the kind of non-competitive account that we really wanted to underscore was, you know, that basically we are called to be conformed to the image of the Son. That's what ultimately this is all about. It's the gospel of divine sonship. We are to be conformed to the image of the Son. And so what happens there means that we do good works, but our good works are ultimately united to Christ. Now, those good works have to have some sort of salvific value in our mind, because if they don't, then you're saying that Christ's work doesn't have salvific value, because it's not simply that Christ's work is just on the cross. It's also what happens in us, right? And so in the Council of Trent, we we totally affirm you can't do any good works apart from Christ, is what the Council of Trent said. I just happen to have this in my notes. In adults, the beginning of that justification must proceed from the predisposing grace of God through Jesus Christ, that is, from his vocation, whereby without any works on their part, they are called. So we, the gift of justification, the initial gift of justification is not due to anything that I earn on my own merits, you know? And, and then, likewise, that was a, a session six, chapter five. And then in session six, chapter eight, we read, we are therefore said to be justified gratuitously because none of those things that precede justification, whether works or faith, merit the grace of justification. For if by grace it is not now by works, otherwise, as the apostle says, grace is no more grace. And, but nonetheless, looking at, yes, Romans eleven six. but nonetheless, looking at 2 Corinthians uh, 3, what we wanted to underscore here was that on the one hand, you have the, the old law, which is associated with death and the ministry of condemnation. And there, of course, you have juridical language associated with that righteousness, justification language that we find there. But then Paul goes on in the same passage to talk about how he is a minister of justification, a ministry of—this is the NRSV—for if there is glory in the ministry of condemnation, much more does the ministry of justification abound in glory. So in the old law— right? There was condemnation, and that was juridical, but it was also the result of moral. It wasn't just a juridical uh, guilt. It was an actual guilt as a result of the, uh, the the hardness of heart. But in the new covenant, there's going to be a ministry of righteousness. That ministry of righteousness involves a legal dimension. To be sure, there's no sense of denying that. Dikaiao has a legal connotation there. We totally affirm that, but it isn't just legal in a, in, a, in a sense that um, it's contrary to reality. It's not that the righteousness that we are that we then have in Christ is then counterfactual. No, because we are actually transformed so that this ministry of righteousness has to be something greater that is in, in the old covenant. Because in the old covenant, the ministry of condemnation was the result of failure. And in Jeremiah 31, that's the whole point, right? The, the the covenant was broken because of sin, and then in Jeremiah 31, there's going to be a new covenant, and God is going to forgive his people his sins, and he's going to address the issue of adakias, right? The unrighteousness. And so the new covenant is going to do something that the old covenant was not able to do, and that is bring us the righteousness of God, which we do not earn, <laughs> we, we cannot merit that gift, but once we are united united to Christ, we can be transformed, and we can do his works in a way that participates in his work of redemption. So yeah. I, I don't know if that helps, Matt. That but, does. Let me, yeah. 
let me jump in here um, as I do think, um, yeah, it's it's absolutely great. And my question was a, certainly one of that was, you know, a provocative question that might mask how close uh, uh, it might mask um, for listeners that our, our soteriology is very close. I mean, uh, what I articulate in some of my own work and what you guys are articulating, there's a fraction of an inch of a difference. Not that there aren't some differences still, um, but uh, it's it's um, I don't want to I don't want listeners to think that um, there's some radical differences uh, between um, the soteriology. Theologies, uh, that we're expressing here. Um, why don't we, um, we're, time is running along here, uh, so we're going to need to uh, begin to wrap the interview up, but I want to make sure we get that speed round in. Um, Chris, you want to um, you want to do that speed round, and then maybe we'll hit him with a final question. Good idea. Okay. This is a little bit more off the cuff now, uh, I'm afraid. Okay, let's, let's ask you, Brant. Um, the most important theological or biblical studies book written in the last 50 years not the most original, I know, but what do you think? For me, it's E.P. Sanders' Jesus and Judaism. That was the okay. transformative book okay. for me. Just E.P. Sanders. Yeah. 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 Um, I think we're so, still, I think we're still, I think historical Jesus studies in particular is still wrestling with the questions he raised in that book. Okay. Yeah. And that, for me, that was, that was the game changer. Okay. So, um, E.P. Sanders or Thomas Aquinas? Aquinas, of course. It's Aquinas every, all day long. But, but let me let me be clear. Aquinas' biblical commentaries are the place you want to go. He wrote commentaries on every single letter of Paul and Hebrews. Uh, and if you're doing Pauline studies and you haven't cracked them yet, uh, order them and read them, and you will be surprised. Uh, he's certainly a medieval, but he is no slouch exegete. So, yeah, I love Aquinas deeply. Um Although it, it, it's medieval, so it can be sl- you can be slow going sometimes, but keep going. Uh, just start with Romans, and you'll you'll be amazed. Well, this is this is an, uh, this is a slightly heavier question now, and and I'm going to showcase my cultural referencing. So, In and Out or Five Guys? My wife doesn't let me eat it either. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't let you eat at either. Yeah, we're in Ephesians. We're, we're in Ephesians seven family. Yeah. No, no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, when we go to when we go to SBL, Brant, uh, you know, we had lunch two what two years ago. Um, I'm, we're, we're, I'm, I'm taking you out somewhere. To be quite honest, we don't have either in the where I live in Louisiana. I, we don't have. Oh no, but there is five guys on the North Shore, but not in my town where I, where I where I reside. So uh, I have to I have to pass on both. Okay, so if Pope Emeritus Benedict Sixteenth came to your library, what would be the first book you'd encourage him to read? Ooh, ooh. Mm. Um, I would, uh, the first book I would encourage him to read. Oh my Don't gosh. say the Bible. That would get you in trouble. Ah, no, no, I won't. Uh, th- thank, no, this is a great question. Hold on, hold on. Um, let me think. I would love to know what he thought about my book on Jesus and the Last Supper because he's written extensively on the Eucharist over the course of 50 years. And one of the one of the topics that he's changed his mind on over the years is the question of the date of the Last Supper. Um, and he's changed his mind on it several times. And uh, I would love to know what he thought about my hypothesis in that chapter in Jesus and the Last Supper. All right, we'll we'll do a we'll do a wrap up question then. Um, and uh, how about uh, how about one of uh, one for each of you? One for we'll, we'll have Michael and then Brant go. Um, so, what's a modest hope for this book, Michael, and uh, your greatest hope, Brant? A modest hope for me is that this is a book that uh, will help forward ecumenical conversation about Paul and encourage people to dive more deeply into the Second Temple sources and into the, the Old Testament sources as well to better understand Paul. So I hope this is something that uh, Catholics, non-Catholics will be able to read and uh, will further their interest in recognizing Paul's Jewishness. My greatest hope would be, uh, well, no, no. Greatest hope is to situate Paul within Judaism. I, I think that the Paul within Judaism movement uh, that we see in the work of scholars like Mark Nanos and Paula Fredrickson and Magnus mm-hmm. Zetterholm is really are really asking some very, very important questions. But I also think there's some big holes that need to be filled, need to be addressed. And so I would hope that this book moves that conversation forward, does total justice to Paul's Jewish identity, but, but at the same time uh, raises serious questions about the fact that there's some things that are really new in Paul's thought. His Christology is new. His theology of the Lord's Supper is new. His understanding of baptism is, there, there are new things here. So I want, 
I really hope that we could emphasize the newness of Paul's theology without in any way diminishing his Jewish identity and his Jewishness. Uh, so that's kind of my greatest hope for it, that it would make that kind of contribution. Um, and I, I share Michael's too. Uh, I, I think that in the last 500 years, a lot of the divisions between Catholic and Protestant exegetes on Paul, a lot of times we're talking past each other, sometimes because we're not using Paul's language. And so we were hoping to try to focus on what Paul says, but from our perspective, perhaps as a way of building some bridges, ecumenical bridges, in, in, in the way we look at Paul, especially his soteriology, some of the things we just talked about, justification. There's still a lot of conversations that need to be had before uh, we can, I think we're still not quite fully understanding one another. In some ways we are, but I, I hope that there can be some bridges built there. And that was kind of our, it was really to do homage to, to the professors that we learned so much from. I've learned so much mm -hmm. from David Awney and E.P. Sanders and Scott and Michael Gorman and N.T. Wright and these guys who are coming from different perspectives, and you both. Uh, but those big names, uh, I, I wanted to try to take what I've learned and, and, and show how I think we, we, I think we're understanding Paul better than we were even 60 years ago. And that's exciting. That's, that's how I feel. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, uh, doubtless anyone who picks up uh, uh, Brant and Michael and John uh, Kincaid's uh, new book, Paul, A New Covenant Jew, Rethinking Pauline Theology, uh, is going to find uh, that it in indeed uh, does do a lot to build rapport between Catholics and Protestants. And it is, it's asking all the right questions and engaging uh, the right scholarship at a deep level. So you guys are to be commended. It's, a, it's a really an excellent book. You can also uh, look forward to Chris uh, Tilling's interview with John Kincaid uh, that uh, is uh, probably maybe published before this one. Actually, I don't know the order we're going to publish them in. But anyway, thanks so much, gentlemen. Uh, we've really enjoyed having you. Um, this has been Matthew Bates uh, with Chris Tilling, uh, and we've been speaking to Brant Petrie and Michael Barber uh, about their new book, Paul, A New Covenant Jew, published with Erdman's. Uh, there's a link on our website to the book for purchases, www.onscript.study. Until next time. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.